Follow the FODMAP diet, especially when there is so much information available online. Actually, the more information there is, it can make it more confusing. The low FODMAP diet was developed to help people with IBS, and most research shows it helps about three out of four people better manage digestive symptoms. But it is not an intuitive diet to follow on your own, and it can be very confusing. So this is what I'm going to be talking about in this episode of the Inside Knowledge. You'll learn what are FODMAPs, when to try this diet and when not to, and how to start. And you'll also find out some of my top tips on making the guidelines as easy as possible to follow. And welcome to episode 17 of the Inside Knowledge for People with IBS with me, Anna Mapson. Today, we're going to dive into the low FODMAP diet for IBS. I want to explain to you what it is, how to do it, and whether it could be a good option for you. It's been developed specifically for people with IBS and around 75% of people will see some kind of benefit from it. Now, if you have never heard of the low FODMAP diet, it's basically an acronym. It stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides and polyols. Those are the various letters and they are each different types of starch. They're basically short chain carbohydrates which are found in food. They can't be well digested by humans and they're often broken down by our gut bacteria. This is a good thing. We want to feed our good beneficial bacteria but for some people with IBS these particular carbohydrates can draw water into the bowel which creates loose stools or because of the fermentation process it can create excessive gas. So if you've never thought about what these foods might actually involve let us just go through a list of them and see. So oligosaccharides this includes two key subsections really. There's galacto-oligosaccharides which is often found in nuts and seeds, beans and lentils, almonds, chickpeas, those are all high GOS foods and then also in that first oligosaccharides we've got uh, fructans and these are long chains of fructose modules that are linked together. This is found in foods like wheat, onions, garlic, grapefruit, courgette. If you haven't listened to my episode about gluten and fructans, I did mention a bit about that last week, episode 16. So go back and listen to a summary of fructans. But just as an example, those are some of the foods included in the oligosaccharide category. Then we've got the D, the disaccharides, that's lactose, which is found in dairy foods. The monosaccharides, that's a single saccharide and the disaccharide, obviously two saccharides stuck together. Um, but this includes fructose in, so monosaccharides category includes fructose, which is in tomatoes, mango, red pepper, grapes and some stone fruits as well. And then we've got the and for the A and then the P is polyols, which includes sorbitol, xylitol, mannitol. Sorbitol foods include sweet corn, avocado, um, blackberries and white cabbage. And the mannitol section includes butternut squash, cauliflower, mushrooms, celery and fennel. So what you might see from this list of foods I've just drawn out is that they're all healthy, good foods. Like these are not foods you want to restrict long term. So the process of the low FODMAP diet is not to restrict these foods in the long term. 
The way you approach the diet is to follow this low FODMAP elimination phase for somewhere between two to six weeks. This is to see if you feel better without these fermentable carbohydrates. So if you feel better, you get less bloating, maybe less diarrhea, less gas. That's a good sign and it means you can continue. The reason it's up to six weeks is that sometimes people find it takes a little bit longer to see improvements and you probably would want to go to at least two weeks. And I find sometimes if you have a bit of a slip up and you eat something high FODMAP, you didn't realise you might want to do another week or you might want to do a little bit more in order just just to help you get a good baseline that's what the first phase is all about establishing a good baseline and reminding yourself of what good digestion should actually feel like then the important bit the most important bit that most people don't get to is the reintroduction phase you want to do a careful reintroduction of higher FODMAP foods whilst monitoring all your symptoms this phase can take a really long time because there is a specific way to do it with suggested extended periods of reintroduction and increasing amounts and you need a bit of time in between each trial to wash out and make sure that you are resetting. Most people do not go through this process properly and they say oh, I tried the low FODMAP diet didn't work and I still don't know what my triggers are and that's because of the reintroduction phase. Anyway, the final phase is your new diet, which is a longer term eating plan. So including as many of the high FODMAP foods as you can manage and excluding anything that triggered your symptoms during that reintroduction phase. So who should not be doing the low FODMAP diet? Well, firstly, if you haven't actually got a diagnosis of IBS, I don't suggest starting with this low FODMAP diet. It's not the first thing that I would try anyway, because it is complicated. The first thing to do would be to go to your doctor and understand if there's any medical tests you need and make sure you get checked out before launching into a restrictive diet. If you haven't looked at the basics yet, I would also start there. If you haven't yet addressed how you're eating, looking at slowing down to eat, chewing, all the basics, spacing out your meals, making sure you're getting a good nourished diet full of protein, fats and carbs. Maybe if you haven't looked at other factors that can really influence digestion like alcohol intake, caffeine intake, whether you've got sleep, is there any medication that's upsetting your digestion? How is stress affecting you? These are all things I would start with first because these are like the baseline things that you can do without the restrictive diet. And then the other time I would be very cautious of starting a low FODMAP diet is if you have a history of disordered eating or diagnosed eating disorder. If you have an existing eating disorder, then you should be working with somebody who understands your condition anyway. But if you have maybe a history of an eating disorder, like it was in your teens and now you're in your 40s, there is still chance that following lots of diet rules could be quite triggering and so I think it's worth investigating maybe if you have a therapist talking that through if you have a practitioner you work with in terms of nutrition making sure they fully understand how that eating disorder has affected your current approach to eating because if you're following a lot of rules sometimes it can bring back some of those thoughts about controlling food intake. If you've now listened to this and thought actually I do want to give it a go it's worth a try here are some tips to get started first of all I would start by thinking about what you can eat 
So really focusing on foods that you can eat freely that are low FODMAP foods. These include things like rocket, spinach, green beans, collard greens, olives, parsnips, papaya, rhubarb, kiwi, green bananas, oranges... You can eat lots of these, as well as things like potatoes. Protein does not have any of these starches in it, so you can eat as much meat, fish, eggs as you like. And the low FODMAP diet is not a caloric restrictive diet, so it's not meant for you to lose weight. The important thing is that you don't get too hungry, because that can also trigger IBS symptoms sometimes. So you want to make sure that you know what you can eat lots of. And then the next step is to identify which foods are allowed in moderate amounts, but you can't eat too much of them. So you can have a small amount. This would be things like a quarter of an avocado is okay, but when you get to half an avocado, that becomes high FODMAP. This is why the diet is highly confusing. You will read blogs that say, yes, you can eat peppers, peppers are fine. Then you'll read another blog that says, don't eat peppers, they are high FODMAP. And this is because bell peppers, there are different colours. There's red, yellow, orange and green, and each of them has a different FODMAP rating for the size of the portion that is allowable under the diet guidelines. So for example, with red peppers, you can only have about 40 grams before it tips into a higher moderate FODMAP. Whereas with green peppers, you can have up to like 60 or 70 grams, I think, before it becomes higher FODMAP. So you can have a lot more for your portion because of the amount of fructose in the fruit. So it is all dependent on portion sizing. And this is why it's good to understand what you can eat lots of without worrying too much. And then what foods you can eat in small portions. The other thing to know is that this diet is not gluten-free, it is not dairy-free, but it does limit your intake of wheat due to the high fructans and milk and high lactose foods such as, such as yogurt and creamy cheeses. So you can have around 40 grams of hard cheese, for example, which is not too bad a portion if you want to have a sandwich or if you want to grate some cheese on your dinner or something like that. It's doable, but it's not a huge portion. So if you're used to eating a lot of cheese, you may find this, you know, just understanding what 40 grams of cheese looks like. And then my last tip on getting started would be to make a plan of two to three versions in your head or on some paper of breakfast, lunch and dinner. You want to know two to three things that you can eat for breakfast. Maybe a nice weekend one that might be a bit more tasty and time consuming and something else that's really quick that you know you can prepare the night before or that you can do quickly in the morning before work or taking the kids out, whatever. And then do the same for your lunch and your dinner so that you've just got a couple of options that you understand how to make them and you understand what to do. The final thing to remember in terms of like quick tips for getting going is that this phase of restriction is only for two to three weeks it is not forever if you can just get through this week the first week is probably the hardest and once you've established a little bit of a routine you'll feel a bit more confident I'm going to record a part two of this podcast specifically about the reintroduction phase because that is one of the most tricky parts of the diet and I want to give it sufficient time but whilst you're in this low FODMAP phase the first bit where you're just cutting everything out a couple of things to help you one would be thinking about FODMAP stacking if you have more than one portion of a moderate FODMAP 
in a meal and you add it to another portion of another moderate FODMAP meal, it could make it a high FODMAP meal without you realising. So as an example, two tablespoons of apple is about moderately high for sorbitol. The same as a quarter of an avocado or half an avocado might be moderately high with sorbitol. If you're adding these together in the same meal, you could end up with a higher FODMAP meal without realising it. So this is one of the traps that people can fall into, is putting a meal together, including lots of small or moderate portions that actually then will add up to be a higher FODMAP meal. This is where keeping as much diversity in your diet as possible is really, really helpful. You also need to be aware that some foods do contain more than one type of FODMAP. So like apples I just mentioned have got sorbitol and fructose and cashew nuts have got gauze and fructans and this can make it more confusing when you're trying to work out what you've actually eaten that might have triggered your symptoms. You must also remember that you are not a machine. You may not react to foods in the same way that a machine did when the foods were classified in terms of their FODMAP content. The Monash University in Australia is where the FODMAP diet was created and the way they measure the amount of FODMAPs in food is by some standardised processes that shows the amount of sugar in grams per 100 grams and they look at the particular sugars like fructose and lactose and that sort of thing. And whilst they do try and pick a selection of foods, like I think they have five different supermarkets or five green grocers, and they pull it all together, or they might, you know, choose the main brands that are available on the market. They are choosing things that are from the Australian market mostly, and there can be some difference in when the food was picked. So if we think about tomatoes, they can taste completely different if they are slightly underripe and they've been kept in the fridge or if they've been out in the sun getting all ripe and juicy. It depends on the variety that's used. It depends on the climate that the food was grown in, the season that the food was grown in, whether it was force grown under polytunnels or naturally grown because it's the season, how long the food has been stored before it was tested. So all of these things you can see can affect the potential to have higher FODMAPs in a food that may be classified as low to moderate FODMAP but may still give you a reaction and that is because you can't standardise everything that you eat and compare it to something that has been tested in a lab in Australia. Now that doesn't mean it's not accurate. They have done so much work into how these FODMAPs affect your gut and what particular cutoff point is thought to induce symptoms in people. So there is so much research behind this diet. However, it may be an individual response to a certain food that could still trigger your symptoms. And this is down to individual genetics, your own digestive processes, maybe other health conditions, your mental state when you're eating. All of these things could have some impact on your ability to digest your food. And that's why there is some trial and error expected in the low FODMAP process. Even if you follow the diet to the letter, it is not an exact science and I know that can feel very frustrating when you are trying so hard but you're not seeing any of the improvement. The other thing to remember is that it might not be FODMAPs in the food that is the issue for you. 
there are other kind of triggers in foods that can set off IBS-like symptoms, including histamine, salicylates, which um, is in things like oranges, berries, sweet potato, broccoli, almonds, and tea. Um, alcohol intake, that can be a real trigger if you are drinking a lot of alcohol alongside the low FODMAP diet. Sometimes dairy, and it can be like a dairy allergy that's been undiagnosed, or maybe you just can't even tolerate small portions of the lactose. It could be a problem with gluten intolerance. Other things in foods like soy and corn or other allergens that are known to be a problem for people like eggs. And this is where the sulfur content of food may be an issue for some people. So if you find that things like onions and garlic and um, processed meats, that kind of thing are all triggering for you, consider whether sulfur might be a problem as well. I just listed those things out. That's not an exhaustive list of other things that could, but it's a common list of things that I will cycle through in my mind when working with somebody who says the low FODMAP diet doesn't work. Other issues that are worth considering if you feel like the low FODMAP diet doesn't work for you is to think about gut bacteria. This is really important because these are the things that are helping to break down the fibre in your diet. If you have a lack of the beneficial bacteria or you have an overgrowth of pathogenic or like bad bacteria or maybe some particular strains are overgrowing out of control in your small or large intestine, these can affect your ability to process fibre and you may find you're reacting significantly to carbohydrates in your food. Then the last two things that you should be aware of is maybe you've got a problem with gut motility. So that migrating motor complex that comes to sweep out your small intestine, that should be happening. And if it doesn't, it may lead to an increase in bacteria overgrowing in your small intestine that can impair your digestive enzymes. So motility in terms of fast transit time or a slow transit time can really affect your ability to digest the food and can lead to IBS symptoms. So whether you've got fast or slow transit time, some of that, yes, is affected by diet, but it might also be affected by nervous system issues, by a lack of maybe movement. If you're not actually doing any exercise, that can lead to slow digestion, for example. And then finally, the visceral hypersensitivity that's so common, so that gut-brain connection, thinking about your gut's nervous system, you may be experiencing heightened sensation of pain and experiencing more sensations of gas and movement within your body than other people could. And it might not have anything to do with the FODMAP. So it might be almost like your gut's nervous system. That is the key. And in that case, you should work on your vagus nerve, um, other nerve system support in terms of managing anxiety and stress. And also be aware of how hypervigilant you are, which can be a bit of a conundrum when you are doing this diet in order to focus on your symptoms. And yet, if you're someone who's sort of symptom obsessed, it can be pretty tricky. I'm going to leave it here for this episode. The next episode will all be about how to do that reintroduction, what you'd be looking for, what kind of things you can do in order to know whether FODMAPs are your trigger and if they are, which particular ones. So do join me next time for a bit more on the FODMAP reintroduction process. See you then. Goodbye.